Welcome to the New Books Network. This is the Nordic Asia Podcast. Welcome to the Nordic Asia Podcast, a collaboration sharing expertise on Asia across the Nordic region. My name is Arvansen. I'm a researcher at Center for Development and the Environment at the University of Oslo and leader of the Norwegian Network for Asian Studies. I'm here today with Huitam Sham, Assistant Professor at the School of Geographical Sciences and Urban Planning, Arizona State University. She's also a leading expert on urban mobility in Vietnam, and last year defended her impressive PhD thesis, Productive Frictions and Urbanism in Transition, Planning Lessons from Traffic Flows and Urban Street Life in Ho Chi Minh City, Vietnam. Now, I happen to have quite an interest in this topic myself, we're focusing on Hanoi instead of Ho Chi Minh City. And ever since we had Hui Tam as a speaker in a webinar on sustainable mobility in Vietnam, organized by the Norwegian Network for Asian Studies in June, I've really looked forward to discussing this more in depth. So Hui Tam, welcome to the Nordic Asia podcast. Thank you for having now, me. I once met a young Vietnamese researcher visiting Norway who complained that tourists would come to his country to take photos of traffic. What is it about traffic and mobility in Vietnam that is so fascinating, do you think? I love this question. I love this <laughs> researcher's reaction. I think there's a lot to disentangle here. You know, in this statement that a Vietnamese researcher would complain that tourists uh, take photos of traffic, the first thing for sure is fascination. There is something fascinating about traffic in Vietnamese cities. I mean, starting with how dense it is. At the time when I when I was doing my fieldwork in Ho Chi Minh City in 2018, you know, we were talking about a city of 8 million people with 8 million motorbikes circulating. And men, women, children, the elderly, um, handicapped people who, you know, like customize motorbikes so that they enable mobility basically for everyone at this point. In libraries, you can find so many books, you know, of pictures of motorbikes carrying all sorts of things. And that is still the case. I mean, less and less as the country is modernizing, but motorbikes with hundreds of chicken on on them or construction material or all sorts of things that are circulating in the streets. And you have like this constant flow. I think that is the fascinating part. There's something a little hypnotizing about watching this flow like a flock of fish, basically, circulating through the streets. So I think I can see how that is a a memorable experience, just like crossing traffic is a memorable experience that most tourists come back, you know, from Vietnam sharing this experience. How do I cross the street when the flow basically never stops and just dodges around you as you cut through it? So I can see how that is fascinating. I think it speaks to the fact that there's something cultural about mobility in my work, I, I, I refer to this um, very idea, you know, of a, as a transportation signature, the idea that motorbikes are to Vietnamese cities what gondolas are to Venice and, and the cars to Los Angeles. The second thing I find interesting in this statement is that, that the researcher would complain. Like, why would they complain? What is wrong about making this impression on people who come visit Vietnam? And to me, it speaks to this question that, yeah, I guess Vietnamese people would like to be known for something else, 
But, you know, if we refer to this transportation signature idea, I mean, people take pictures of gondolas as well. They pay to get on the gondolas. So I think there's something, there's no problem, like with taking pride in the dominant form of mobility as a cultural aspect. And finally, you know, this notion of like not being so proud of what it is, to me, it speaks to something else I covered in this dissertation, like, about the conceptions of, of what mobility should be like, especially mobility of the future. And something I heard from uh, local officials in Ho Chi Minh City once, like someone said, this is not what the modern city looks like. So these motorbikes flocking through the city that tourists would um, take pictures of, this is not what the, mod- what the modern city looks like. And something I found especially interesting is that even the people who depend, you know, also people of all ages, again, of all social classes and backgrounds, they seem to have internalized uh, this conception that the modern city does not look like this, that having so many motorbikes on the street is somewhat backwarded. And to me, this is an erroneous way of looking at this very prominent cultural feature. Oh, I've heard the same <laughs> many times. And it is also, of course, showing in urban authorities' plans of banning motorbikes in, in cities. We'll have to speak more about the, the future of mobility in, in Vietnam as well. But I fully agree with what you're saying. I think one of my favorite pastime activities in any Vietnamese city is sitting down on a street corner with a cup of coffee and just watching traffic. And I would never do that in Oslo, where I live, for example. I was happy to see once, and maybe it is sort of a turn, you know, but um, I guess it was an article from Tu or some other large Vietnamese newspaper back a couple of years ago. You know how motorbike taxi drivers, who are another prominent <laughs> feature of Vietnamese street life with ta- motorbike taxi drivers for the longest time, they were just uh, waiting at every single cross street, basically waiting for customers and reading the newspaper while lying on their motorbikes. And and now that you have all these apps coming, like Grab and all of these, this entire industry overnight basically was um, taken over by those shared mobility apps. And I remember once seeing in that newspaper an article saying that is, uh, I think it was Ho Chi Minh City, the question was, is Ho Chi Minh City losing its motorbike culture? because the motorbike taxi drivers were not on the streets anymore. It's recent. It was the first time I, I saw some form of official uh, governmental news refer to a motorbike culture, and I think there is something Yeah, because the it. motorbike has come to mean a lot. I had another young Vietnamese once tell me that the motorbike is to the Vietnamese what the horse is to Mongolian. And many do take pride in that, you know, that any Vietnamese know how to drive a motorbike. I've heard that statement often. You don't need a license, like you know it from birth, more or less. Um, so the motorbike has a deep cultural role, I think, in not only in Vietnam, but there is a special role in Vietnam that you don't see in many other places, I think. Obviously, also in the past few years, uh, or the past decade or more, perhaps, cars have been challenging this dominance, and there are more and more and more cars on the street as well, and they are doing something to traffic. Transport experts and policymakers and everyone sort of expected that by now, Vietnamese cities should be car-dominated and not motorbike-dominated, but the motorbike is resilient. 
I saw a report from, from some years ago that the, the Ministry of Transportation had this plan that there should be something like 30 million motorbikes in Vietnam by 2020. And there's now 58 million is the last number I saw of motorbikes in the country. So things haven't really gone according to plan, you could say. I mean, when it comes to the car, the government made a big shift as well, recently, somewhat recently, like 2015, marked the turn from very uh, restrictive import taxes that were specifically aimed at limiting the number of cars on the streets because authorities knew very well that the street network cannot accommodate that many cars. Like the streets are really narrow. What is it? Something like 85% of all streets in Ho Chi Minh City are alleyways that are barely wide enough for a motorbike to pass. So given the state of the infrastructure, there were very strict limitations on car imports at a time when Vietnam did not have a car maker. So, you know, Toyota, you would pay $15,000 in the United States, you would pay $30,000 in Vietnam, where (laughs) incomes are much lower. And 2015 marked this shift from the Vietnamese government at national level decided that the car industry, car manufacturing, would become a central piece in the national development strategy of the country. The car maker now exists. It's called VinFast. They launched the very first two VinFast cars at the Paris Motor Show, Auto Show in 2018. And now there is an impetus, there is a push, a top-down push coming from the government to encourage the car to become a consumption good just like it has in other modern societies. So something has changed as well in the plan. The plan changed quite abruptly, actually. It's, there's a motorbike culture, as you said, but also, and I know both of us have a special interest in this, the relationship between the motorbike and the rest of the city. Of course, everyday life, but also the very infrastructure of the city. And I think you have a great concept in your PhD thesis that you call this productive friction. Can you explain what productive friction is? I think you should start by telling us more about what, you know, your concept of the system of motor mobility. I think it comes first, in a sense. <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 and I'll explain how this um, idea I, I came up with later, you know, building on your work. So how it connects to this uh, system of mobility that you described in your earlier work. Well, in thank Hanoi. you. That's, that's generous of you. And I, I promised the listeners I didn't plan on that. Uh, <laughs> the, yeah, system of motor mobility is it's building on the now late John Uri's work and his work on the, the system of automobility. And his work focuses on the car and how it depends on a, a very large system that is self-reinforcing. And he wrote about the infrastructure and culture and, and everything that surrounds the car, from all the road networks, the gas stations, the supermarkets and shopping malls, and different forms of car culture and going on car holidays and, and everything, basically. And this is the system of automobility. But then I reacted because he also says that something about the frictionless journey with a car is something that is unmatched by any other forms of mobility. And this, to me, fits into a a larger trend in basically all of academia, but also rather surprisingly in this big mobilities field that almost everyone ignores the motorbike. And 
it's quite obvious that to, to millions and millions and millions of people, it's the motorbike and not the car that represents that kind of, of flexibility. And from my own work, I see that the, actually the motorbike is more flexible in many ways, maybe not long distances, but the sort of mobility levels, the getting from A to B in, in Hanoi, which is such a densely populated city, is actually you know, the time you spend in traffic is actually surprisingly little compared to many other places where there's so many people living together. And that's much thanks to the motorbike, and especially in a context where there isn't much public transport. And what I basically realized then was that actually there is a system of motor mobility in Hanoi and in other Vietnamese cities that in similar ways, the car in John Ari's concept Everything is built around the motorbike. And it started with the, the bicycle, I think. And infrastructure has developed alongside two-wheelers. So as you mentioned, such large parts of Vietnamese cities are actually consist of narrow alleyways where you cannot get a car. And you can with the motorbike, just like you could with the, with the bicycle. So that's the very infrastructure is built around it. But also in terms of, for example, parking. There's no, there's no parking for cars. <laughs> Still, you can can drive more or less from door to door anywhere in these extremely large cities. And this is just something extremely fascinating to me. And also, I think to me, it was a sort of realization. I actually set out to study the emerging automobility. I set out to study the car. And I was driving around on a motorbike all day, and I, I suddenly realized that actually this is the most important, this is the most interesting part here. It's, it's actually this, this motorbike society. So the system of motor mobility then goes from the large infrastructure and motorbike industry in Vietnam, which is also very big, and down to the, the small details, like this mini ramp that allows you to drive the motorbike inside the living room. So that's a rather long answer, <laughs> but that's to me what, what the system of motor mobility is. But I think it is exactly the right order because I do draw on uh, the work of people like John Yuri, Mimi Scheller, the car in the city, the system of automobility and all that, you know, they have founded together this new mobilities paradigm, which is like you just said, so they focused on the car because this is what they were faced with, immersed in, you know, in um, Western society. But this very notion that one dominant form of uh, transportation and all the infrastructure and all the political economy that supports it very much shapes social relations in the city and the relationships between, um, so they are sociologists, so they are interested in the politics of mobility and I think it's very relevant um, to make the case that in another society, another form of dominant transportation, the motorbike, in the case of Vietnamese cities, plays a similar role in shaping society. And in my work, I, I, I draw on this new mobilities paradigm as well. This notion of productive friction, that is the, the theoretical contribution from my PhD dissertation also speaks to the notion of social relations, but what I'm mostly interested in is those most fleeting social relations, like the social interactions that happen, that take place in public space between strangers, semi-strangers that will simply gaze at each other or maybe engage in a very, you know, short and casual interaction as they go about their daily business. But the notion of productive frictions, I defined it as the, the opportunities for inclusive social interactions 
that are permitted by the contact of the flow of movement with the built environment as it goes through it. And I made the case that motorbike mobility is especially conducive to productive frictions in the sense that when you look at the transportation flow, like the flow of motorbikes through the city, for reasons like the one you mentioned of that flexibility that enables people to stop on a whim, to buy something on the way without even getting off the motorbike. They just pause for a, set, for a minute, they step down, they step one foot down, um, they buy something from a vendor and they keep going. This flexibility, this ability to park in very tight spaces, the ability to see and smell everything that is available to them, you know, in this environment that is extremely busy. Other scholars who are public space scholars have paid attention to the public spaces of, of Vietnamese cities, specifically for their very vibrant feel. There's so much going on, thousands of people just hanging out, eating, drinking tea, and interacting with friends or strangers and street vendors, like the importance of street vendors as contributors to this very active street life, and also the importance of street vending as street vending is the very first step for most rural urban migrant to make their way into the city. So in my work, when I was doing my field work, I conducted interviews with daily, you know, users as motorbike users. I conducted interviews with street vendors as well. And I recorded street life in many different types of streets, like 333 videos of street life and traffic. And um, basically to summarize is that street vending, starting with this very essential activity, street vending basically would not be possible without the motorbike, not to that extent. And all of the uh, social interactions that street vending and other activities, it's not just street vending, it's also all of those cafes and restaurants that are lined up in a continuous manner along the larger boulevards, streets and boulevards. You know how they have um, patios, large patios right on the sidewalk, right next to where the motorbike parks. All of this activity and the social lives that it supports would be made very difficult if most people were driving by car without the possibility to stop on a whim, without the possibility to park basically at the entrance of the coffee shop. So if they were experiencing this frictionless mobility... So this productive friction idea is very much about this continuous contact that a flow of mobility like the motorbike flow enables, a continuous contact with the different activities that the built environment supports that makes it possible for people to go in a smooth manner from being on the move to being engaged in social interactions in the activities that the built environment allows. Yeah, no, I, I really like how your work captures the, the relationship between the bike and social and economic life in the city. And I think it's really, really important. And yeah, there's something that I, when I talked to car owners back when I did work on mobility, that's something that many would mention as well, that suddenly they couldn't stop for that bowl of fur that they, they wanted. I remember one guy said that he had stopped and then he had to pay a fine of 500,000 dongs. It was the, the most expensive bowl that he had ever had. That's something that came up um, often in interviews because I would talk to people who were, you know, upper middle class individuals who were contemplating, really seriously thinking about getting a car soon. 
And the, the interviews with these profile of people were especially informative because part of the interview process, I would actually ask people to walk me through all the stops they made the day before. And um, I'll just give you one example, but one typical <laughs> motorbike user would tell me about, oh, in the morning, I did stop to buy my breakfast on the way. And then I went back home and then I picked up my child and we went to the park. And at the end of the day, this person had gone, had made something like 11 stops in the city, including four stops in the evening to buy the ingredients for dinner at a wet market. And, uh, you know, it would mean going through the market on the motorbike and stepping the food down to buy the vegetables, to buy the rice, to buy the tofu, to buy basically every single ingredient for dinner at a different uh, street vendor in the market. And then later in the conversation, as we go about the interview, this person is telling me about their intention to, to buy a car soon. And I asked the question of like, if you think of all the stops you made yesterday, do you think that would be possible? Would you go to the same places once you drive your car on a daily basis? And the first answer is like, why not? And then, you know, as they go through the mental exercise of thinking about all these stops, being like, huh, I guess not. <laughs> Either the streets are not wide enough or there's no way to park. And then the conclusion to this was, well, I guess I have breakfast at home and I have to buy everything from the supermarket. And it was not necessarily, you know, out of choice. Like in this case, I mean, in this one moment, at least, it was a matter of uh, constraint. The mobility, the new form of mobility that would be the car would not allow the same way of interacting with the city, of engaging in the different activities that the city supports. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And there will not be any possibility of creating that amount of parking space within uh, Ho Chi Minh City or, or Hanoi. There's just, there's just no way that you can do that. And it is the case that where parking does exist is underground parking or, you know, above ground parking, several floors of parking at the bottom of larger new developments that do include a mall, that do include residential condos and all. It is this transition from motorbikes to cars as it is happening. It, uh, the motorbike is resilient. You're totally right. It's not like people are dropping the motorbike to suddenly drive the car on a daily basis. For now, the people who do buy a car because they can afford it, because they want the children to be safe in traffic, because they're tired of sitting in the, you know, this busy traffic and breathing in all these exhaust pipes. These are, to me, very understandable reasons. Like, um, I don't think any mode should be banned one way or another. It is a debate, you know, when Hanoi, Ho Chi Minh City are actually adopting plans to ban motorbikes by 2025 uh, from certain areas in the city center. First question that comes to mind is why would they buy the motorbike, the mode of the, everyone, to make room for cars, which is still the mode of a select few. At the same time, when you hear about the motivations of more and more people who can afford a car, as it is becoming more and more affordable as well, to me, these motivations are very understandable at all. So I don't think any mode should be banned. But something interesting that is happening is that, like I was saying, people are not just shifting overnight. What's happening now is they have a car in addition to having a motorbike. 
depending on where they have to go, they will have this multimodal experience where they will still use the car nowadays more like for the family outing on the weekend and the car enables them to maybe go to the beach more often. Like Vumtau is not so far away from Ho Chi Minh City. Not so many people get to enjoy that rest, you know, that leisurely activity that is to go on a family outing on the weekend. But within the city center, they still now prefer the motorbike, at least for running errands and, and go places. And I feel like this multimodal experience should be encouraged. Like should be, this is what we should be planning for. You know, it's not a matter of like planning for one mode and, and, and preparing for another that will take over. I feel like it makes sense to me to encourage this, um, make it possible for the people to actually enjoy this multimodal yeah, experience. Yeah, no, I fully agree. And I think these are very important points in all of our romanticizing about the motorbike. It's not pleasant to take your entire family on a motorbike downtown Ho Chi Minh City or, or Hanoi. Um, Especially when it rains. Yeah. <laughs> it's a tropical country. It doesn't yeah, mean so yeah. it But also the air pollution that just keeps getting worse. There have been studies that show quite clearly, you know, the inequality in terms of exposure to air pollution, that if you don't have very good masks, at least, uh, you are exposed to a lot of harmful emissions when you're in traffic on a motorbike or on a bicycle. And if you're in a car with, with an air conditioner, it uh, filters much of the, the particles. But yes, uh, the multimodal city, one thing that I've been arguing for is uh, the return of the bicycle and that it should... Authorities should embrace these two-wheeled cultures and then make room for the bicycle again because the bicycle was pushed out. And then it came back, sort of. But it came back not as a means of, of transportation, but as a, a means of exercise. <laughs> and what I found, and I found myself doing the same, <laughs> is that you go out and you do exercise on the bicycle. And then maybe you have breakfast and a coffee. And then you return home, have a shower, park the bike, and get the motorbike and go to work. So that seems to be, for now at least, the return of the bicycle. It returned as a, as a means of, of exercise. But another trend is, of course, and that is perhaps more promising in terms of clean air, is the electrification of the motorbike. Do you have any thoughts on that? Can the many versions of the e-bike replace traditional motorbike? This is interesting because um, it does seem like the natural evolution, you know, that you would like to see that remains close to this typical mode. Like that is not as disruptive, let's say, while uh, hitting the target of moving towards cleaner mobility. To me, it's interesting that I remember back in maybe 2000, before 2010, there was a penetration on the market of uh, electric bicycles that were coming from China, where I hear that in China they've been adopted quite uh, widely. And it seems like in Vietnam it didn't really take, especially not in the south. It seems like in the north, more people adopted it, but dropped it quite a few years later, basically as soon as the battery died. And people realized that um, replacing the battery is actually very costly, more expensive than buying the bike itself almost. And um, it seems like this very first failed experience back, yeah, I think it was 2008, 2010, 
kind of left a, a scar. Like it's not like uh, the product that naturally people will go to. And when it comes to this distinction effect, you know, that is associated with purchasing your first car because now you've made it into the middle class and the upper middle class, the electric bike doesn't serve um, this goal. So to me, it's like, it seems like the electric motorbike or electric bicycle is not that appealing because it does not have this distinction effect. And because there are certain concerns associated with the life expectancy of the battery. And of course, the range that the bike affords. And and now people still have their motorbike that is totally that serves this goal so why would they invest it is quite costly as well basically the same price as a motorbike so why would they go replace their motorbike that works perfectly fine with an electric bike so i don't know i I would like to see it being uh, promoted more especially when people will still at least a decade i think like still will be replacing their motorbikes now it seems like they've reached motorbike peak it's like uh, 90 something percent of all households have at least one uh, typically it's more like one per person in driving age people are not like getting equipped anymore but they will still replace motorbikes as motorbikes get old so i would like to see at least this marginal a transition from motorbikes to electric motorbikes or electric bikes as people are replacing older motorbikes. But will they massively transition towards it just like they are massively transitioning to the car? I don't think that is going to happen. That's kind of how I see yeah, it. When I started looking into or started studying mobility in, in Vietnam 10 years ago or so, there was already much talk about this, right? The electric scooters and so on. And and what we pretty much got instead were this kind of hybrid, like this electric bicycles that school children especially use, which aren't really bicycles. They're like electric scooters with pedals, basically. And they don't require a license. So those are very popular as a addition sort of to, to motorbikes, but they they don't compete at all with the traditional motorbike. But I have seen that lately there are some developments For example, Vinfast, as you mentioned, and their Clara model, which is an electric bike. And some new startups read about this that bike company, for example. And it seems at least that they're taking seriously the the worry about the battery and that they're also produce them or construct them in ways that they're fast to to charge and you can charge them easily at home and things like that. So in some ways, they sort of embrace the mobility cultures of, of Vietnam. So that gives me a bit more hope for for that sector. I live in Norway, which is one of the very few countries in the world that has actually managed a transition towards electric cars, like a large-scale one, and to create a functioning market for electric cars. This process has been going on for decades. It has required so many incentives and so many uh, government policies targeting this sector. So I, I fully agree with you. I don't think this will just happen. It needs to be put in place somehow. I agree with you that the market has is playing a role. These innovations, like the Clara that you mentioned by Vinfast, that bike, you can tell that they are targeting a certain population. They are proposing a new product that is not just an electric version of what people already have. I feel like they are aiming a little bit for the Tesla effect. You know, we want to promote a new electric product that is 
select <laughs> that uh, has a that does get to this distinction effect that people aim for when they are buying a new car. And um, that bike, I guess, is a little different. Even in the design of the bike, you can tell that they are. It seems to me like they are reconnecting with the Russian Minsk. That has been for a long time very attractive, you know, to like the adventurer. This is the adventurer that goes in the mountains. And now they are obviously targeting this population that look for this style. But there is a notion of style, like a notion of like the identity, your identity, what you would express about your identity through your motorbike, which is something that's, again, connecting to this earlier question we addressed, you know, how deeply cultural the motorbike is how much people customize their motorbikes this whole industry about stickers like to make it to match your favorite color and your favorite um, manga character <laughs> and to me this is kind of what is happening with these um, new products that come on the market that are targeting a very specific group with a very specific identity that want to represent they want their new vehicle to tell something about themselves and that gives me hope too, in the sense that uh, they are designing a new product that can be attractive for reasons that are not just the fact that they're electric, an electric version of the common thing they are. Yeah, and interestingly, they're also targeting exports, right? So there are, many of these are Vietnamese <laughs> products that are also targeted for a larger market than Vietnam. All right, so we'll start rounding off soon, but we should discuss a bit more. What does the Vietnamese mobility future look like? And one of the new quite brand new things is of course the new metro both uh, Ho Chi Minh City and Hanoi have been constructing metros in cities that have had very little public transport compared to the need so what do you think will this alter Vietnamese urban mobility completely I think it will fit at least at first it will fit in this range of options that is expanding a mobility options that people have for multimodal experience one thing that I'm a little worried about moving forward as we see this mobility landscape evolve is the equity of this landscape. We started by talking about the motorbike as being, as of now, as of five years ago, say, really the mode of everyone that would enable the ease of mobility, which is what you expect from transportation mobility, the ease of mobility basically for everyone across class, gender, um, socioeconomic means, education, everyone had access to this form of mobility where, as far as I know, in the last travel survey, you know, a representative survey back in 2014, I think, people were already complaining about how congested the streets were, but the flow was going, the flow was moving, and on average, the daily commute was 14 minutes. It's, which is nothing. So people were able to access all the places they need to access. Everyone was able to access all the places they need to go to in not so much time. And that is getting worse and worse as more and more cars on, are coming on the street. So there is something that is that seems deeply inequitable in seeing the mobility of the few people who can afford this new form, the, buying a car, uh, come to the detriment of the mobility of everyone else, basically. I would hear in my in interviews with car drivers themselves, you know, being aware that as I enjoy the comfort of my AC and my cleaner air in the confines of my car, 
and also the safety for everyone inside the car, I know that I'm making the air <laughs> and, and the traffic more dangerous for everyone else around me. So this is deeply inequitable how things are changing. Something else that I'm a little concerned about as well is how the metro projects, in Han both in Hanoi and Ho Chi Minh City, I, I used to work on them as a consultant um, for, let's say, the job I, I used to do as before I, I joined academia for my PhD. But the way that those projects are being promoted by international experts coming from the international agencies involved in the funding of these um, systems and the way the narrative that is adopted by the authorities, the Vietnamese authorities, is very much the same as what you would find everywhere else. Like we advertise, we promote those metro systems as the cleanest modes, as the most equitable modes, like with this mindset that this is going to be public transportation that is accessible to the public. But when you see how the first line that just opened in Hanoi and the first line that is current, like about to open in Ho Chi Minh City, like just when you look at, um, at um, where the stations are located, this is nothing like what the, the motorbike mobility affords. You have only one station downtown, like the first line in Hanoi. It's not even close to the city center where most of the activity, most of the jobs, most of the people still live. So it's one station that is touching on the city center. And then the whole system, the whole line, you know, flows outwards to the new urban areas where you have places like Vinhome Royal City <laughs> opening. So this is not the mode of the people. This is the mode of the people who are shifting to a more modern lifestyle where you go to work every morning, you go back home in the evening, but you don't have like this very typical experience of today where like the, the typical experience today still is for the vast majority people who live right in the dense core of the city and work in the same place oftentimes in the same house like the ground floor of the building will be the shop and the rest of the family lives on top of the shop and then you have all of your daily you know moves are about running errands here and there, but it's not like what the metro will afford you to do. So this is this mindset, this idea that the government is proposing this new alternative to the motorbike so that people, it's the mindset of those bans, you know, like the ideas like will ban by 2025 because by then we will have the metro systems will be in a capacity to absorb the demand for mobility. This transition is not a one-on-one -on -one relationship. There's no way it can actually serve the same goal. These are my concerns for the equity of mobility in the future in Vietnam. And when it comes to the broader the system you know, of social relations that the mobility landscape supports, you know, something that I suspect is that as the metro become absorbed more some of the demand, as people are shifting to the car. Going back to this productive friction that I was talking about earlier, to me, the motorbike supports this uh, continuous connection between the flow and, and the streets. So this continuous activity. And what I anticipate, you know, is a spacing out of those friction points. So those friction points basically may be concentrating around the, the metro stations, those transportation nodes, concentrating in places where cars can stop 
But down the line, the spacing out of this friction and emptying out of those public spaces and a shift towards more and more individualistic way of life where people don't get so often a chance to come together as a public. So this is, <laughs> in short, <laughs> how I would uh, summarize like the different points that we mentioned. Oh, these are excellent points. My worry is if, if you look at many other large Southeast Asian cities, Jakarta being among the worst probably, but also Manila, Bangkok, you know, these Vietnamese cities are actually working much better in terms of mobility. I like to quote my colleague Desmond McNeil here. He's done much work on Indonesia, including in Jakarta many, many years ago. And he once asked me why people in Vietnam start replacing the motorbike with a car. And I just answered briefly that I said, you know, the car is the future. And his response was excellent. I think he said, but we've seen the future and it doesn't work. And this is my worry. So visiting, especially Hanoi, but also Ho Chi Minh City or Da Nang over many, many years and just see this increase in especially then cars, just seeing like how gradually, gradually traffic is, is slowing down and gradually becoming more congested. I just want to fully support your point earlier about the need for a multimodal city. You need the two-wheelers there to make this work, I think. And then you also need, of course, public transport that actually works. All right. So I think we'll end on that note. Thank you very much, Albert, for inv inviting me. This was very nice. I really enjoyed this. So Huitam Jam, thank you so much for joining the Nordic Asia podcast. You have been listening to the Nordic Asia podcast.